This episode contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Today's guest is Sarah Heppola, author of the book, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. Sarah and Meredith discuss alcohol, teetotaling, and the reasons we do the things we do in this open and honest episode about alcohol in our culture and our lives. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. The guest today is one of my favorite authors. She has been making a major impact with her book. Sarah Heppel is here. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. So Sarah is the author of Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. And as many of you listeners and followers of me know, I am a sober person. I call myself a sober Sally. And I actually celebrated, I I don't know if I want to call it celebrate, but I hit the milestone of 18 months sober yesterday and um, super excited to have Sarah on to discuss her sobriety journey, her book, and whatever else we think to talk about. So, <laughs> yay. yay. So, Sarah, um, let's start out with just a simple question. When did you have your first drink? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I had a sip of my dad's beer when I was a little girl. And I think that was pretty common at the time that they would, adults would let you have a sip of beer. And, but what's unusual about it is how well I remember that moment. And I, I think that smell is like, right. Like the primal scent, you know, uh, right. That sense. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. And, uh, I can just still smell that glass of beer and how magical it was to me. And, so I took a sip and I loved it. And then my mother is such a non-alcoholic that she would leave half empty beer cans in the fridge. <laughs> like, I mean, that is so weird to me as an adult. I'm like, mom, you couldn't drink a full beer. Right. But she was watching her figure. And so she didn't. And when nobody was looking, I would take sips from the beer. And I had learned that it would make me kind of dizzy. And so I would take sips and then I would spin around the living room and I knew that this was wrong, but I don't think I understood exactly why or what was going on. Like in the way that, you know, I mean, it's one of these things where like they tell you as a kid, don't put your hand on a hot stove, but if the hot stove felt really good, you'd be like, well, that was terrible advice. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so I started stealing beer as a little girl. And then when I was like seven and eight, I, uh, this was like a ritual for me. Um, but uh, and nobody knew anything about this. And I was a, like a straight A student and a really good girl. And nobody was like, my mom would never have been like, I think there's a little less beer in my in my can. I'll bet it was Sarah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I was like this quiet, shy, sweet little girl. So they had no idea. Um, and then the first time I got drunk, uh, was the summer of my sixth grade year. Again, I mean, I was a precocious drinker. Um, and my cousin who was four years older than me, so she was 15. I was almost 12. Um, I'm sorry. She was 16. I was almost 12. Uh, she had like a work party and everyone got together and I was hanging out with them trying to look older, pass for older. 
And somebody let me, you know, pass me a beer and I had a beer and then I had another beer and I got wasted that night. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, I had my first blackout that night. That's so interesting. When you're talking, I'm sitting here nodding. I mean, I didn't steal beer because my parents were teetotalers. Um, and oh, it's so it, funny. They didn't start drinking until like I was in my twenties. Oh, wow. And I'm like, really now, now you drink. Yeah. <laughs> like, no kidding. Now that I have a problem with it. You're drinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when you said the smell of it and my, my first drink since they were teetotalers and I kind of came to it later, I was 17, but I can smell that. And mine was a margarita. And I can smell that first drink and I was instantly hooked. I mean, so many people that say, yeah, I just don't care to drink. I'm like, oh my God, who are you? What? (laughs) You know, it's to me, like this would happen in high school where girls especially would be like, ooh, beer's gross. And I would just be like, (laughs) what are you talking about? It was like, I had found this alternative universe of unicorns and glitter and they (laughs) were experiencing like this hellish you know, hellscape. Right. <laughs> I don't understand it at all. And, you know, even when I got to college and, and especially with females, for some reason, it seemed like they were always having to say things like I have to make myself drink or I have to train myself to drink. And it was like, are you kidding? This is like, this is like the world amplified to me. It was, it, it presented itself very early on as like the fix for all my problems. And I still think about it. I'll read like descriptions of like people finding God or, you know, like the saints, you know, (laughs) seeing bright lights, like all of it has like a spiritual experience kind of tinge for me where it was like, I was, I think I even used the phrase in the book. Like I was pierced by divine light. It, It had that feeling to me of like, I totally get it. And one of the things that cracked me up in your book, and I don't, I don't know if you said it directly or if it was a theme kind of like drinking with the boys. I mean, absolutely. you know, we would have parties and my husband or boyfriend at the time would, you know, go to bed. And I, he had a friend that was like my um, male counterpart of me and we would just pound drinks and there was no end. I I mean, I could always drink with the boys. (laughs) I could totally drink with the boys. And I was so proud of that because the truth is, if I get down to it, I can't do much else physically with the boys. Now, you know, I prided myself on being as smart as the guys, but I'm five foot two and not very much of a sports person. Right. right. And so get me out on the shot put field and I'm going to kind of embarrass myself. But if I go toe to toe with the guy at the bar... I'm going to match him drink for drink. And I would do this with guys that were like six foot three and giant. And I was so proud of myself. Do you know that, that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, Is it bad that I haven't seen that movie? It's bad. Yeah. I will watch that tonight. Don't shame me. It it really holds up. It's a great movie, but there's this amazing scene where the, the, his female love interest is sitting in this, you know, tavern and she's sitting across from this guy and she's matching him shot for shot. And when I saw that as a little girl, it was like, that is the portrait of strong femininity that I wanted. You know, I may, first of all, she was beautiful. The woman was beautiful and she was small and, you know, she wasn't manly. She had this feminine beauty, but she could drink like the guys. Yeah. And to me seemed like the total trick, right? To be sexy like a woman or to be beautiful like a woman, but to be able to be tough and drink like the boys, 
that was like the winning combination. I thought at the time. However, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Ah, it kind of turned on. <laughs> so I don't even know. I don't even know what to ask you next. Cause I just, I love so much and I, I feel like, oh my gosh, well, let's talk about body image when, what, since you touched on being a woman and being beautiful. Um, how did alcohol play in your role of body image? For me, it was, so I've always been sort of overweight and insecure um, still am to this day, but when I drank, I would be thin and yeah. beautiful yeah. and yeah. sexy and all these things. Was it the same way with you? Absolutely. It was like a line item veto, you know, <laughs> like, like no longer have those heavy thighs, <laughs> yeah. no longer have to be worried about that pudge. And what's so interesting to me is that actually from a reality standpoint, drinking, if it does anything, it actually makes you look worse. Right. You know, you kind of get sloppy and like your boobs hanging out and like you're <laughs> tripping, but you feel like a shimmering goddess. Yeah. <laughs> and it, that discovery, you know, that I could change the way I felt and that I could, if I couldn't manipulate my body, because I had spent all of high school, you know, I was introduced to drinking very early, but in high school, I was so conscious about my body and my shape that I wouldn't drink very much. I mean, I was one of those like real calorie conscious drinkers that was like, I only drank Coors Light because it had X number of calories right. or whatever. 110. Yeah. Nine, that, wait, 90 or 110. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and I would drink three of those and I would know like, you know, how much I had to exercise. So I was that person. Right. What was great about that time was that it kept my drinking in check. You know, I, I actually wasn't drinking in the, in the kind of uninhibited way I wanted, but I still didn't have the body. You know, I just, my, I felt so frustrated you know, I was five foot two and curvy. And I felt like I've always felt all my life. Like I was this like terrier that wanted to be a Labrador, <laughs> you know, like I just, I wanted so badly to be a different, I wanted to be tall and thin and, you know, I have big boobs and I wanted to be flat chested. I didn't care that everybody was like, Oh, it's great. You have big boobs. No, it wasn't. It was terrible. <laughs> it made me look fat. I didn't like it at all. And Anyway, whatever I was, I wanted the other thing. And, and that's everyone. You're not alone. We're never no, happy. No, you're never happy. But, you know, it really works out with women in this body image thing. Maybe it's because we have a vocabulary for our constant dissatisfaction or, you know, because we, we have the shared experience of, like, not liking our body or because we feel pressured, whatever, whatever it is. By the time I got to college, you know, I was so uncomfortable in my own body and then in college, you have this place where like, you're supposed to be kind of casually sexual with people. Yeah. And how's that going to work? Like, how are you going to just be like, oh, okay, I don't like anybody seeing me in a public space, but I'm going to get naked with this <laughs> guy that I like the most of anyone. <laughs> I'm going to be okay with that. No way. You got to be out of your mind. So I think that's where alcohol bridges the gap for so many women because it basically allows you to feel safe when you're vulnerable. Yeah. And that's what makes it very uh, handy and then also dangerous. You know, that, that has a shadow side as well because you will feel comfortable and safe in situations that are not. But, um, but, but back then, all I knew was that it did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. 
which was to feel comfortable in my own skin. And so when I got that freedom, when I felt that freedom, you know, I, I have this, this chapter in the book where I talk about, you know, the freedom that I felt when I got to college and I could really drink the way I wanted to. And I felt, I felt, you know, like my parents weren't going to bust me or like, I, I, yes. you know, I freedom yes. to do it. And it was like, I think of that sometimes as what it would feel like to be a man. Now, I know there's a lot of men that read that passage and they're like, that's not what it feels like to be a man. I'm inhibited. I, you know, but to me, it was like, I ruled everything, you know, I come into this party and everyone wants to talk to me. And I just had this sense of authority and, um, I don't know, privilege or, um, I rule the universe yeah. that, you know, I always felt like like lasers were kind of coming out of my hands. So I had a lot of, you know, magical thinking tied up with my drinking, but it really, but in college, that's when this really became, um, a, a well-worn habit for me was that the only way to kind of handle my insecurity, whether it was intellectual or physical was to drink through it. And when I drank, I very much became the person I had wanted to be, which was, I felt powerful and sexy. And like you said, I felt thinner. I definitely felt thinner. I definitely felt sexier, you know, and it is true that women like will become more open. Like I've interviewed guys that talk about the difference between a sober woman and a drinking woman. And they'll talk about that, that way that women who are drinking, like drape a hand on you and, you know, laugh easier. You know, they're just more open at, and, and so when I drank, I did that. But when I drank too much, then I, then the night got away from me. So yeah. it was always a trick for like 15 years it was like, how can you drink just enough to get the benefits, but not so much that you get the, the backlash. So you mentioned and, that drinking sort of gave you a sort of freedom. And I, I felt that way too. I mean, I, was also a good girl growing up. Yeah. And so when I got, when I escaped, you know, I did everything I wanted. And my husband always jokes with me to this day. He's like, nobody puts baby in a corner <laughs> because I, nobody puts baby in a corner. You tell me I've had enough to drink. Oh, yeah, I'll show you oh my gosh, how much yeah. I can drink. <laughs> I know. I know. It's totally like that too. <laughs> I was such a jerk, by the way, that when I drank and I get got away with so much, because I was little and non-threatening. And I think about guys that get, um, you know, phys- I would get physical with people or, um, you know, I would be like, you know, screw you. I can drive home. Like, what are you doing? You know, I really, I, I was, um, yeah, I got feisty. I got very feisty, but I interrupted you. Sorry. You were no, you- no, no, that's funny. See, so I'm, I'm slightly, slightly bigger, like by a half foot. So I'm five, eight oh, yeah. and a tank. And so the, I think the problem with me being nobody puts baby in a corner was that my husband was like, Oh my God, I cannot fight these people. (laughs) You are on your own. And so he was like, well, you're a substantial woman. Go fight your own battles. Yeah. 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 I used to, I used to pour beer on people's heads. I remember that in the book you did. No, that was, you got a beer poured on you or who was, maybe that's another book. See, even the beer books are. I know, right? Like, who poured beer (laughs) on what person? Um, I think I do mention it very briefly that I poured beer on people's head. I don't think it's a scene. Um, It was an ongoing thing in college, 
And I usually poured beer on my friend Dave's head. <laughs> he wasn't around. And he would just he would just be like, oh, it's the time when Sarah pours beer on my head. He would just kind of have this wah-wah look. <laughs> but if he wasn't there, I would seek somebody else out. And I would pour beer on their head. And then, and it was okay, like, half the time, if we, they were really drunk, they were like, oh, that's funny. It's just a girl. But then, like, a couple times, somebody had to intervene and be like, I'm so sorry. She's really drunk. I'm so sorry. We're getting her out now. Oh, you know, it's like, I would, oh, not so, a good habit. Well, let's talk a little bit about blackout Yeah. as far as the book and the term. Um, I just want to read this quick part in your introduction because, and then I want you to define blackout because I knew what a blackout was because I'd yeah. experienced so many of them. And, but until I read your book, I was like, oh, that's what's going on. So yep. here's the passage. Um, I needed alcohol to drink away the things that plagued me, not just my doubts about sex, my self-consciousness, my loneliness, my insecurities, my fears. I drank away all the parts that made me human. In other words, and, and I knew this was wrong. My mind could cobble together a thousand PowerPoint presentations to keep me seated on a bar stool. But when the lights were off and I lay very quietly in my bed, I knew there was something fundamentally wrong about losing the narrative of my own life. I was like, whoa. <laughs> losing the narrative of your own life. And I was also a blackout drinker, but I didn't know I was a blackout drinker until I was sober and read your book. I, it never occurred to me. So define blackout as you do in the yeah. book because it's so powerful. Yeah. Well, um, so a blackout is different from passing out. And that's the first thing I usually have to explain to people. Um, a blackout is when your long-term memory shuts down. It's basically alcohol-induced amnesia. So you're still walking and talking and interacting with people, but you don't remember it afterward. And the thing about blackout that's so tricky is that because you don't remember, you can't remember things, you can't know things that you don't remember, right? So as when the drinker wakes up, they don't know anything strange has happened. It only occurs to you if somebody was there, for instance, and how I would learn that I had blackouts was that my that, that when I was 12 years old, my cousin said, you know, do you remember doing this thing? Do you remember doing that thing? And I didn't remember any of that. And that was so completely freaky to me that I would be operating like I was there. But some part of my, basically your brain isn't recording is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is that it's, you know, the hippocampus, which is in charge of putting memory, short-term memory into storage. It just basically has a failure. So you have short-term memory, which means you can continue to talk to people. You can stay in a conversation with somebody, but if too much time passes, you'll repeat yourself. You have, you know, short-term memory lasts for like, let's say it's around two minutes. They're not exactly sure. But so that's why whenever you're talking to somebody and they'll tell you a story and then a certain amount of time passes and then they'll <laughs> tell you the story again, like they didn't just tell it to you. And it's so creepy when you're there because you're like, um, you just told me that story. <laughs> They don't remember. That's that's one of the the only signs that there is of blackout, and it's not even a reliable sign necessarily. One of the reasons that blackout is so mysterious is because the person in a blackout doesn't know that they're in a blackout, and the person talking to them doesn't necessarily know they're in a blackout. One of the researchers that I interviewed said that it's like trying to tell if somebody else has a headache. You wow. know, you you can't tell what's going on in someone else's mind. 
And so for a long time, you know, I think, I think there's always been this joke, this kind of free floating joke of like, I don't, you know, I don't remember what happened last night or it was such a great time. We don't remember, but I don't think there had really been the neuroscience on blackout until this century. It took for, um, you know, in fact, there was some misunderstanding about blackout that it was, um, that it was a, a sign of alcoholism. So for a long time, you would see it on those diagnostic tests, you know, do you ever black out? And if you did, then your medical professional would be like, oh, I think this is a, you know, this <laughs> right. is a predisposition to be an, al- an alcoholic. Well, in 2002, uh, a researcher named Aaron White did all these um, studies at Duke University. And what he found was that 50% of the student body had experienced a blackout. And when they first looked at the data, um, the people at his organization were like, this is wrong. This is crazy. 50% of these kids can't be alcoholics. That's insane. You got to go back and do this. This is wrong. So he went back and did it and got 50% again. And that's when we realized, oh, this is actually, a, a, a common, although not ubiquitous, not everyone has a blackout, but it's a fairly common side effect of binge drinking. Right. It's, it's what happens when you drink fast and when there's a spike in the blood alcohol content, which comes from drinking on an empty stomach, drinking shots. Um, those are the two main risk factors and women are more prone to it than men are. You know, I think for a long time you would think of this, you know, like a blackout drinker would be like this big dude that drank a ton. Well, it turns out big dudes can actually hold their liquor pretty well. So they don't black out as often. Your blackout drinker, your poster child for blackout is going to be female, (laughs) um, small or smaller, you know, and, uh, and she's going to do things like skipping dinner because she wants to save calories Mm -hmm. or as the kids call it these days, pre-gaming, you know, they drink before they leave the house. So that's one of the reasons why blackout has become such a common experience in colleges because basically the risk factors are college drinking. Drink fast, drink liquor, drink on an empty stomach, and be female. That basically describes a tremendous amount of college drinking. So I did most of my blackout drinking toward the most of my drinking toward the end was was blackout drinking. I mean, I would be standing at the sink in the morning with my husband brushing my teeth, like trying to pretend like I wasn't hungover, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, "What's wrong?" Right, and he's like, "Really." Yeah. Really, Meredith. And I'm like, okay. And I look around. I'm like, oh, that looks broken. What did I do to that? Right. <laughs> you know? How scary um, is that, too? Oh, I mean, it's yeah. so bizarre to wake up and then someone has to tell you what you did. You have to find out what you did the night before. It's terrifying. I mean, it, it, I when we were newly married, I remember waking up and I was like, so how are you doing? And he's like, well, how was the Waffle House? And I thought, what do you mean? How was the Waffle House? And he said, well, you took off with your pack of cigarettes and went to the Waffle House apparently. <laughs> and you came back and you had met like five people and you brought them with you. Oh my God. <laughs> like, I don't, I mean, no memory of A, leaving, B, going to the Waffle House, C, bringing people back. It's so creepy. And, um, you know, it's, it's good that in in a way that you at least had a witness who was your husband who could fill in some of the blanks, you know, for a lot of my drinking, the last years of my drinking, I lived alone. So I would just wake up and be like, where did that pizza box come from? Why are my 
pantyhose in my purse. Oh no. Like, what? Like, why is there a hot dog in my bed? Like there's <laughs> like, so many questions. And I always say that, um, you know, it's like waking up, uh, in the middle of a mystery, you know, that, that blackouts are a detective work on your own life. And it's, you know, how did I get here? What happened? Um, you know, you, you have to trace the, the crumbs that the, the trail of crumbs that you've left. I mean, one of the things that I would do is always go to my purse and look at the receipts I had and you'd find like this credit card that I've signed at like two 30 in the morning where like, it looks like an EKG, you know, my <laughs> signature is just like, <laughs> you know, it's so not even legible. Um, and, or, or I would find like stamps from clubs on my hand and I'm like, what club is that? Um, and you, tr- you know, you look at your text messages. I mean, I'm a, I'm lucky in the sense that I quit drinking in 2010. So that's right as the crest of social media happened. Right. But I know lots of people that would go immediately to Facebook and be like, Oh my God, what did I post? What did I say? What did I do? What pictures are there of me? You know, what stupid thing did I do that now you have to find out? It's, it's, um, it's hard to explain the, the terror of this to people that don't experience it because it's such a bizarre sci-fi right. experience, right? Is that you have amnesia in your own life. But, um, but it really did always feel like cleaning up after an evil twin. You know, like, what did she do last night? And, and who do I have to apologize to? <laughs> Damn it, you know? Right. And so did you, I definitely experienced a lot of fatigue on the part of my husband. Did you have fatigue on the part of your drinking buddies and your friends, or were they blacking out too? Well, I think there's a reason why I was not dating anybody at the end. You know, I mean, (laughs) like I didn't keep a partner. (laughs) Um, I had a boyfriend for two years and he, um, was thought it was funny at first, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, he got really tired of it and it wasn't funny towards the end. And I always thought that was really unfair because I drank the same amount that he did. But of course he was six foot three. And it's like, I didn't want to acknowledge that there could be a biological difference between us. Right. Cause just we were just as good as men. We were the same. We're the same. Like, like I should be able to drink the same amount as you do. Right. That otherwise it's not fair. And you know, nature doesn't play fair and never has, you know, you look at the animal kingdom, there's <laughs> the lions are like, it's not fair. Too bad you're dead. Like, you know, <laughs> but, but anyway, um, he, you know, I can remember in, in hearing your stories about your husband, you know, what it takes me back to is waking up and just being like, I could tell from the way that he was walking around the house, like whether or not he was mad at me, yeah. whether or not I had done something stupid or embarrassing. And he just, he just got tired. Yeah. He got really tired. And that was so hurtful to me because again, I was stuck in this place of like, you should take care of me. You know, if, if, if the genders are reversed, you know, like women always take care of their stupid alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) That is the story that I've read all my life. You should take care of me. And I think that's not now with the distance of time, I look back and think, you know, 
women should not be staying with alcoholic husbands either. It's not their job to take care of them. You know, when it, it was not his job to take care of me and I don't blame him at all for leaving. In fact, I think that he gave both of us a gift, uh, which was to end something that wasn't working. And I was trying to drink my way into feeling better about it. And, uh, so, you know, but I didn't, I didn't have, uh, a relationship for many, many years. I had a lot of sex and that made me feel better about myself. And, uh, it kept me from feeling like, like I was like a spinster or something, you know, if six months went by and I hadn't had sex, it was like, Oh, I I better do that. You know, like it, like, (laughs) like an alarm went off and people could see or something. It's like, it's like sort of silly, but I think it was very real to me that, um, that there was definitely a connection between my desirability and my feeling like I had value. And I've been trying to sort that out as an adult, as a sober adult now. But, um, but you know, I didn't have a sustained relationship and it's, I don't think I could, the, the one guy that I dated seriously in my, in those last years of drinking lived in another city. So that was really easy for me to hide what I needed to hide from him. Um, so yeah, uh, I was alone Yeah. and, and I think I would have told you, you know, like, I like it that way. And I, I'm, but, but the truth was that I, I was, um, not really able to be in a, in a connected, committed relationship at that time. My primary relationship was to alcohol. So many people have said to me, like, how did you function? How did you do Ironman triathlons? How did you, and I always looking back, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, no idea how I did, but I was, you know, and I think you feel this way too, because you, you're a writer. And so alcohol was sort of, Oh, this is my productivity mechanism. Yeah. This is what makes me creative and awesome. So tell me about writing as a drinker and writing as a sober person. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I think one thing was that, um, I did have this feeling that drinking helped me in my career. And I think in some ways it did, you know, uh, because the magazine world too is, it's filled with kind of heavy drinking and journalism world. It, drinking was not a liability for me. Even when I came in hungover, everybody was like, ha ha ha, you're hungover. I never felt like I had to hide it. I didn't have one of these corporate jobs where I was living two lives. I was literally writing stories on the sites that I wrote for that were like, I had a blackout last night. Like I was not, I was not hiding that stuff. Right. Um, I worked at a place where as long as you met deadline, Nobody really cared how you got it done. And one of the ways that I got it done was to use alcohol as kind of booster mechanism. Um, when I had to do boring work that, you know, if I had to do like really late editing work, I would drink a bottle of wine and I was able to stay functional through that. And it gave me a sense like I wasn't stuck in work till eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And then when I had to kind of be free and loose, if I was working on a story, I would just go to a bar. I would literally write stories in bars, which, you know, is kind of obnoxious, but it worked for me. And I would get a couple of beers and I would sit there and I could feel like I was out with people, but I was working. And I, you know, alcohol is a disinhibitant and, and disinhibitor. And so one of the biggest problems I've had is just the, you know, where I come into writer's block is when I get into my head, you know, saying like, 
this sucks. Why do you think anybody cares? This is terrible. You know, it's, it's the same problem I had with my body. You know, your thighs are too fat. You're, you know, you, you look ridiculous. So I could lower that, you know, feeling and it allowed me to be vulnerable. I mean, I think there's a, there's a exactly what was happening. Like I need to get in a room with a guy and have sex with him, even though I'm terrified. I need at the same time, I need to write the deepest part of my heart onto this page and share it with strangers, even though I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to do that? And alcohol felt like it built a bridge to it. Um, and I used that for many, many years. Look, if I, I, I don't know that I would have drank as long as I did if alcohol had been screwing up my career. Right. You know, I, I, I think part of why I was relying on it so much was it felt like it was making everything possible. You know, I, I was able to maintain this kind of like bravado, this personality that I, I never fully felt like I owned, but, but it, anyway, it, it worked for me. And I think it's very important that when I quit drinking at the age of 35, part of why I quit drinking was because it stopped working for me. I mean, I really got into such a place of despair between my body kind of rejecting drinking in a way that it hadn't before. You know, like I'd always been able to function on a hangover, but towards the end, I was starting to throw up in the mornings, yeah. which was unusual for me. I wasn't much of a vomiter, but I was starting to, like, I just couldn't get on with my day unless I either threw up or made myself throw up, which, you know, throwing up is no big deal when you're drunk because who cares? <laughs> you're like already disinhibited. Right. When you're sober, it's so humiliating. You know, you just feel so low. And it's like, that's how I was starting my day. And, uh, and I couldn't sit still, you know, even when I drank, I couldn't write. And when I was sober, I couldn't write. And I felt really pushed in a corner where I couldn't live with alcohol and I couldn't live without alcohol. And it was some of the darkest despair I've ever known because I couldn't find my way out of this thing for a long time. It was about two years of me kind of thrashing and hitting the ropes and trying to quit, but then not knowing how to live a sober life and that just seemed impossible and then trying to moderate. So anyway, but you know, I, I think one of the, just, I couldn't let it screw up my writing life. Yeah. You know, because that was the end for me. If I didn't, I'd already given up, like I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. So I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't have a boyfriend. I was broke all the time. I'd given up on a lot of things, but I had my writing and it was that feeling of like, they can never take this away from me, but it was starting to really suffer. And I had to take it. I had to, I had to get out of there. I had to, I had to escape. That's such an interesting, like you telling that story is so similar to what happened with me, I didn't necessarily hit rock bottom that people talk about, but yeah. it was the days when I started to turn the alarm off, roll over, and not worry about getting my kids to school. Right. And um, that was not me. I did it all. I did it all drunk, and I did it, you know, I, I wrote, and I was a lawyer, and I did all these things drinking, and I woke up hungover, but I was fine. And the days when I started waking up and I wasn't fine, um, same thing. I wrestled with it for a long time. Like I'd try and moderate and, you know, oh, I'm going to go out and have one drink. <laughs> right. What a joke. I, tried, I mean, my, like, I swear I thought that was going to be on my tombstone. 
I'll just have one drink. You know, it was yeah. just like my fantasy of having one or two drinks. I mean, I held on to that for more than a decade. Yeah. I'm just going to go and have one or two drinks. And when I learned about the phenomenon of craving, which was one of the light bulb moments for me that allowed me to understand that what I had might be alcoholism because I understood alcoholism as the kind of TV movie version of it or the Hollywood version of it where, you know, you, you've lost everything and it's so dramatic and yeah, that's alcoholism, but alcoholism doesn't have to be that dramatic. Like it doesn't have to be that either. It can be something that's much more quieter. I always say that I hadn't, I'd held on to everything, but I'd lost myself. You know, I had lost me and my core values and who I was, you know, it it sounds like in your life, you were able to carry on basically a high functioning, heavy drinking life for a long time, being a mother, being a wife, being a runner. But at some point it tips over and you can't manage those spinning plates anymore. Right. And when those spinning plates started to crash for me, that cost was too high. Um, and yet it took me a long time to put alcoholism, uh, to, to, to take that label on myself because I just was like, I don't know. I don't seem that bad. But again, sorry, I didn't describe the phenomenon of craving, which is basically this idea that once you introduce the first drink, you have no defense against the next. And that was something I felt so cleanly in my life because I would go to a party and I'd be like, I would swear up and down, I'm going to have one drink. But once I had one drink, I was like, I have to have another. Like I really literally have to. And I can remember times when, you know, I was the person that like, if we ran out of wine and there was a bottle left, but we didn't have, or we didn't have a corkscrew. Like I was hammering that cork into the the bottle so that we could somehow get it out or I was bashing the the thing on the sidewalk so that okay there's broken glass here but let's get to the wine like I had a craving in me that alcohol unleashed that I had never known how to name for it and and I would watch my friends have a drink or two drinks and pass out and I was like wow that is so weird that they alcohol as a sedative and yeah. I experience alcohol almost as a, a manic episode yes. you know like I would get super hyper I would be like karaoke dancing let's go to Mexico let's have sex <laughs> let's do everything right now tonight and it was just like it, it, it was this incredible mania that that um was was clearly in part a a biological or biochemical reaction, but I didn't understand that that's not what happened to everybody. And so when I finally could put together this idea that if I didn't start drinking, I wouldn't have to stop, you know, that was the easiest way for me to, to manage was to never start. Yeah. That was a big light bulb moment for me. And cause as soon as like, as soon as I drank, I couldn't stop drinking. Yep. I always said zero or seven. Like, yeah. just no point. And not my life, but I didn't understand that that was part of the diagnosis, you right. know? 
And I didn't I just, really either until until reading your book. And I struggle. You you mentioned alcoholic and alcoholism. I struggle so hard with that label. Even though yeah. I'll tell everyone in the world that I had a drinking problem, that I would even call myself an addict. But something about the term alcoholic to me, I can't accept that label. And I don't know why, even though clearly <laughs> it's Wait, like, but- hey, that's an elephant. Look at the elephant. Well- yeah. Well, or, or maybe not, but what it, what is it? What do you, what's the, what's the block? I don't know. And I, I know you, you got sober through AA and and the 12 steps. And I want to talk about that too. Um, I got, I got stuck. So I got sober years ago. I had a sober stint where I went through AA and, and, and did that. And then this, this go round, I just like had enough and just did my own thing, which worked for me. I understand it doesn't work for everyone, but I think I always got stuck on the first step, um, admitting that I was powerless mm-hmm. and that certainly my life was unmanageable, but I always got stuck on, on the powerless part. And then I was like, I don't want to be powerless and I don't want to call myself an alcoholic. I don't know. I mean, clearly <laughs> if all signs point to, to yes. Be fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody wants to call themselves powerless. I mean, I, I actually, I've heard this before. Um, and there's a woman who runs a, um, who runs a sober community called hip sobriety. And she has a series of kind of tweaks on the 12 steps. And one of them is, you know, I'm powerful. I can manage my relationship with drinking. Fair enough. We can, we can all do a, a lot of different spins on this. My feeling is as I think, the human condition is that you're powerless. I mean, I, I really do believe that. And I think one of the, the pains that we experience in our life is thinking that we control mm-hmm. what happens when in fact we have very little control. So I, I don't even think it's necessarily attached to alcohol. That's interesting. I think it's deeper than that. And I think part of, you know, what I had to stop doing is trying to control the universe, trying to control how other people acted towards me, how um, my behavior interacted with them. You know, so it was the first step to me letting go of a lot of things that are not for me. And I think what you find is that a lot of people that have drinking problems, whether we call them alcoholics or not. And by the way, I think it's a really interesting and problematic word. And I use it, but there are times when I don't because it can be a what do I want to say? A shutdown word for people. Yes. Yeah, and maybe that's it for me is I feel like people, I can tell them I don't drink and I'm sober and there's one reaction. But if I say, oh, no, I'm an alcoholic, it's almost like they bristle. Yeah, they do bristle because they get scared, I think, yeah. and they don't know what to say. And it sounds a lot deeper and darker mm-hmm. than um, drinking problem. And so one of the reasons that I like to say I'm an alcoholic is that it's, I like to normalize it for people and to say, you know, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. This is part, you know, genetic predisposition and part cultural, you know, (laughs) influence and, and the product of my choices. And we can talk about it as a, some people have talked about it as a disease. Some people have talked about it as a product of loneliness some people have talked about it as a learning disorder. We can talk about all those different ways that might create it. Um, but the truth of the matter is, I think it's kind of a combination of those things. Um, but I am one of those people in your neighborhood. You know, like, I am an alcoholic. It looks like me. It doesn't look like necessarily Nicholas yeah. Cage leaving Las Vegas. And because part of the tenet of Alcoholics Anonymous was the anonymity, and the anonymity came from a terrible fear of stigma in among other reasons. Um, 
I think that there has been a cone of silence around the issue of who is an alcoholic, what does alcoholics look like. And you've seen in a lot of parts of society, things that used to have stigma are, you know, eradicating that. Like we have people who are sexual assault survivors that say, hey, I don't have stigma about that. I'm a sexual assault survivor. You have people that are gay saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with being gay. I'm gay and this is what a gay person looks like. And yet with alcoholics, we have a lot of people that don't, that don't take that label publicly, which is fine. But because of my work, I do have that label publicly. And so I, I feel like, um, I feel like I, I, I try to, to release people's uncomfortableness around the word. But I think Mm -hmm. the discomfort comes from it not being used very much. Yeah, I don't think that's maybe it. And so maybe I'll write a blog post that I'm an alcoholic and (laughs) get on with it. (laughs) But you know what's so important here is that what this gets to is that identity is so meaningful. And how we identify ourselves is, is very valuable to people. And there are people that they will quit drinking and they will make any lifestyle change at all, but they will not let themselves be called an alcoholic because that, you know, and, and at the same time, I re- I do a lot of reading about sexual assault. And so you'll see um, a lot of people that refuse to call themselves a victim. You know, they will not take that. And fair enough. I mean, at the end of the day, I kind of feel like fair enough. Like you get to make, meaning out of your experience and your life. And I think one of the reasons that people bristle is because they don't like a label being slapped on them. Right. You know? And so if people want to talk about, and and I also think the thing about alcoholic is that nobody's ever developed like a really effective litmus test for it. In fact, it has such a squishy um, definition that it kind of falls into those, like you are one if you think you're one. Right. It's a self-diagnosis, which is why it kind of makes the medical community crazy. And they have a different form of, di- of diagnosis, which is substance use disorder. And there's a spectrum, and you kind of fall on this spectrum. But in the non-medical world, either you're an alcoholic or not an alcoholic, well, I'm sure you and I both know people that are clearly exhibit alcoholic behavior, but they don't call themselves an alcoholic. And maybe we even know people that really embrace that mantle of alcoholic but you're kind of like, really? Are you really, really? <laughs> At the end of the day, okay? But who cares? You know, like, I kind of just feel like, eh, let everyone kind of, I kind of feel you do you about it, which yeah. maybe I'm just too, maybe I'm too loosey-goosey on this. But because I know for me it was such a battle, um, it's, and, and now I think of alcoholic as a term of hope. It, because to me, it means you've identified a problem in your life and you're working actively to try to find a solution for that. An alcoholic is really someone in recovery. Yes. Because I'm the people that I'm surrounded by that identify as alcoholics are people that are on the other side of it. Right. You know? Right. There's nothing worse, like you said, of having someone close to you or someone in your community that just refuses to see the problem in themselves. Yeah. It's hard to watch. And then, and then I'm like, oh, it's so hard to watch. And like 18 months ago, my husband was looking at me like, hello. <laughs> you know what? It's really good. It's a really good education for us because we didn't see it at the time. Yeah. You know, one of the things, our 
you forget your own behavior. And I've had some very powerful conversations with the children of alcoholics who their parents didn't know that they hit them, that they abused them, they did horrible things to them. They were literally in an amnesic state, you know? So when they said to their kids, I don't remember doing that, they were telling the truth, but they were so detached from the from the pain that they brought to other people. So when you get to the other side and you start to see what a drunk is like, I mean, and I don't mean like a happy, I mean like the people that are falling down and vomiting and they can't find their way home and they don't know their name and they're hitting, you know, they're a mess. Yeah. And I think back to like all those times, the, ma- the, the part of me that had this magical belief that like I was so connected. Oh, I was so sexy and, you know, strong. And you're like, wow, this is the opposite of all of that stuff. It's this so is- humiliating. I mean, to look back, I mean, how do you deal with the regret factor? And I mean, I, I really struggle with that because it's almost like a flashback and I flash back to the, <laughs> to the next morning usually because I don't remember what happened, but I know something bad happened or, I mean, I feel like that's such a hard part of recovery and that's what drives a lot of people back to drinking because it's like, oh. I can't deal with remembering this. That's right. They can't face who they are or what they've done. And so it becomes easier to just go back, you know, and just, it's so, it's so unfortunate, you know, alcohol is this, it creates so much pain in people's lives, but it also presents itself as a release from pain. And so, you know, it's really hard. And I will say, I think, I think the important process is to neither glamorize that time nor to be so humiliated by it. Because I think, I think it's to put it in its proper place so that it's just another part of your past. You know, I went through a period where I was like, oh, the magic of the bar. The bar was where everyone loved each other and I'm exiled. And I <laughs> have that kind of connection again. And so then I went through that phase. Yeah. And that's just not, I don't think is true. I mean, a bar is cool, but, I, you know, but there's a lot of things that are kind of like go into a bar as a sober person and you're like, oh, my God, it smells so bad. It's so loud in here. <laughs> What's happening? And then I went through a period of time where I was like, oh, my God, the shame is so radioactive. And I did these horrible things. And I do think this is where AA came in very helpful to me because you're surrounded by a bunch of people that are like, I'm the biggest piece of shit in the universe. (laughs) And it's like, no, I'm the biggest shit in the universe. You're like in an arms race for who can be the worst person. And the truth is I was out manned you know like I heard a lot of stories in there that I was like oh you win (laughs) yeah you win okay I didn't yeah okay yeah 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 all right I guess what I had wasn't that big of a deal um and it's not that it's just putting it in the proper perspective you know and 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 understanding having compassion for why you did that you know a lot of my behaviors were exhibitionist in nature they were aggressive in nature and when I look at that I look at how much I swallowed those things when I was sober. So I was so modest and locked up. I was so nice to everybody that when you got me drunk, I was like released from prison. So I was swinging at everybody and I was flashing my boobs and I was doing all these things that were the counter, you know, 
the counter to, to all the things I was trying to hold up inside me when I was sober. And I learned to have compassion for that behavior and that it was, it was what I knew to do. I, I was never drinking to hurt people. Right. I was drinking to find more connection with people, to find more love, to feel good about myself, to feel the way that I wanted to feel. It's just that I discovered eventually that that was a broken circuit. It didn't work. I kept trying to turn the switch and light up the room, but I was flooding the basement instead. You know, like <laughs> I learned that eventually and I stopped and I began to forgive myself for that because I had chosen a different way. I think as soon as you start to see the benefits, you know, my relationships got better. My friendships got stronger. My, um, my, there's, there's a saying in AA, you know, if you want self-esteem, do esteemable acts. Uh-huh. It's true. You know, the more good you start doing in the world, the less you start screwing up, the more you have to have a coterie of people around you telling you that you're okay and you're a good person and it's nothing to be embarrassed about and you know they're there it's going to be okay I didn't need that as much anymore because I could feel like you know I'm I'm actually a pretty good person I'm doing good in the world and um you know so I I learned to put it all in perspective I will tell you the hardest thing for me the hard what well no I'm sure there's other things that are hard (laughs) the hardest things for me is screwing up as a sober person really Screwing up in the same way that I used to when I drank, like saying something really aggressive and stupid or hurting somebody's feelings or doing something that I know I shouldn't do because you realize after a while that like, okay, you know, the drinking thing was hard, but it was a really good excuse. Right. I see what you mean. Like you can say like, that was the alcohol, you guys. (laughs) Now I can't even say that. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm kind of a messed up person that has unintegrated parts of her personality and maybe isn't as nice as she tries to pretend to be sometimes. So it's like I have to own my darkness and my ill behavior in a way that I didn't have to back then because back then that was that was drunk, Sarah. Which is why people don't want to get sober, I think. Of course not. (laughs) They don't want to deal with it. Everything I just described is really hard. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And it was what you mentioned about um, stopping glamorizing. That was, I think, the number one key for me to getting sober is I I joke that I once I decided I would never drink again, that I refused to make eye contact with a drink. I didn't look at them. I didn't listen to them. I had a really hard time with the martini shaker across the room. When that goes off at the bar, I'm like, (laughs) that one's hard. But that's a hard one. Yeah. It has that smell sense too. you know, the hearing at the clock clock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, just trying to stop romanticizing the monster was a big step. Well, it is, it's a big step because culture doesn't agree with you on this. Right. No, I mean, we live in a culture that glamorizes drinking and, and drinking is neither good nor bad. It's really both. And it's really dependent on the individual. Um, but it's both, joy and evil and in one fell swoop. But if you look at how culture portrays it, it's almost entirely, you know, glamorous, sexy, fun, the invitation to good times, the pathway to adventure. One of the things that I've been stuck on lately, and I've been a little gripey about this, and I try not to be a sober grump about things. You know, I try to maintain my, you know, fair, fair brain about everything. Look, if I could drink, I would still drink. Right. But I'm very irritated 
um, by the way that strong women are portrayed on television, it is almost invariably as drinkers, you know, and, and, uh, watch this for a little while. You know, if you go on your next Netflix binge, you know, there's, there's just been all these shows, whether it's the good wife. Yes. The good wife was what I was thinking of. yeah, Yeah. Um, house of cards is like this too. There was a, there was a great show. I'm trying to remember what it was a British show called Mrs. Farmer. Oh my gosh. I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was a British show where this was also true. But, um, you know, you can go on and on with these. If it's a strong female character, they portray her as a drinker. And I don't mind that they portray her as a drinker, but what bothers me is they never show the consequences of the drink. When you have two glasses of scotch before you go into a serious meeting, right. you know, you're going to be affected by the scotch. And when you have one, I mean, these women are always incredibly thin, perfect looking, and they never miss a mark after they have that drink. And some of them drink quite a bit. And I don't like, I don't like the uh, visual analogy of a strong woman drinks. Because to me, I would actually say a different thing. I would say a strong woman doesn't have to drink. Right. And, you know, the ability to deal with your emotions, to deal with the stuff that life throws you, um, requires a certain strength. But I think because in television, we're still dealing with how sexist and kind of how in a, in a box women have had to be, they've had to be hot and they've had to be thin. And so when we see these women drinking, it gives us this transgressive thrill. It's a little wink to the audience that tells you these women don't color inside the lines. Well, that's something that was very, very important to me in my drinking years, you know, that I used it as a like, Hey, I'm a cool girl. I'm one of these different women. But at the same time, like I, I, wa- I was not, I wasn't that strong in my <laughs> other relationships. You know, I, I really needed alcohol to access that part of my personality. Right. So I just, I don't know. I, I wish that pop culture had more role models for strong behavior that, that alcohol wasn't even a factor in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I have a hard time. Like I think Amy Schumer's funny, but I have a hard time when she has her Netflix special and she comes out swinging a bottle of wine and she's like, who's going to black out tonight? And the crowd is cheering. You know, that to me is just uh, played like it's, it's just, yeah, I I don't think that's funny anymore. So let's talk about that a little bit because I know in talking to a lot of people who want to quit drinking or or in the denial slash moderation, I can do this one drink thing. They, one of the biggest fears is I'm not going to a enjoy life, b be any fun. No one will like me. How, How did you transport yourself from, you know, the perceived I'm super funny and, and all of these things drunk to the sober person in the bar? Well, the first thing I would ask these people that are having these drinking problems is, are you really fun right now? Right. Because I wasn't. And I, you know, drinking still felt good to me, but the but the feedback I was getting, unfortunately, <laughs> from some close friends <laughs> was that I wasn't much fun anymore. Right. And that was extremely painful to me because, again, kind of like with my work, 
you know, I had given up this idea that I was going to have a boyfriend. Fine. I won't have a boyfriend, but I was a good friend. I was a clutch girlfriend and I would, you know, I would be there on a dime and we'd be, I'd have the bottle of Chardonnay and we could talk about your day and I'm, I'm there for you. And when I started getting the message from some of those friends that I wasn't, I would drink too much and I would get too loud and I would get aggressive and I would embarrass them or I wouldn't stop or, you know, and I'll hear this. I talk to women, you know, like you have this group of friends, right? And there's this one girl in the group that just can't maintain. Yeah. She's walking into traffic. And she's passing out, you know, in other people's couches or she's going home with guys and you're like, don't do that. And she's like, no, I can do whatever I want. You know, there's this, a lot of female groups, you know, you have this one person that's not, that's not able to keep it together. And I was that person. And when I discovered that I was that person, I was humiliated and I was mad because again, they were drinking too. You know, right. I it wasn't fair. Friends. I didn't have teetotaler friends. My friends were getting wasted just like I was. That is not fair. They get to go drink a bunch of Chardonnay after their hard work day, and I don't get it. That's not fair. And, but the thing is, is that, like, I wasn't fun. I was hungover. I was in a panic a lot of mornings. I was in a kind of existential despair that I really couldn't even look in the face of. Like that's how much I needed the alcohol just to detach from the fact that I was miserable. Yeah. I was so scared to stop drinking because then I was going to have to feel how miserable I was. I had made a mess, a total mess for myself. And the only way to keep myself from the pain of it was to keep drinking. But the more I drank, the bigger the mess got. So I had to detach from my friend circles for about six months. And I wasn't, I couldn't keep going to bachelorette parties and I missed people's um, weddings and I missed baby showers. And I just did it because I had to do it because that's what you would do if you had a, I do think this is where thinking of alcoholism as a disease is helpful because if you had a condition you wouldn't feel bad about taking care of this. You would just do it. Right. And I think because a lot of people think of it as a lifestyle, they're like, oh, well, I want to give up drinking, but I still want to go to all the parties. And it's like, no, you're on shutdown. You know, it's like going through a divorce or like any one of these other things that just cracks open your life, like losing someone that you're close to. Your life is on shutdown for a while. And you're going, and he, the bad news is you're not going to any of that stuff. Yeah. The good news is, that your joy comes back to you and you become fun again and you become fun in a way that doesn't require a chemical additive. You know, one of the sweetest things that my friends tell me, you know, some of my friends that, that confronted me in those years, they will say to me, like, I feel like I got the old Sarah back. Oh, wow. You know, this, this was who, you know, cause my friend Stephanie, like she and I, we became friends when I was in high school. I wasn't drinking like this. But then the more you drink, the more you actually really get a mask on you. You don't know it. It happens because you're pretending and the drinking is trying to kind of like keep you from your emotions. But you're not who you really are. And when I quit drinking and we could spend time together not drinking, 
which she still drinks. She loves to drink, but we could spend time together taking a walk and not drinking. You know, I think women are better at this than men. I think guys are, can be jerks about it. They're like, what? I don't ha- I'm not going to drink around you. Forget that. <laughs> women friends tend to be like, I'll oh, support you. And so yeah. friends were very supportive. Right. And so they would take walks with me or we would go to yoga together. And, and that, that was it. But that was enough to make me feel connected. And, um, I could start to feel fun. Like yeah. what, what is, sorry to get all philosophical, no. on you, but like, what is joy and what is fun? Are those things that happen after you kind of chemically induce them? You know, <laughs> like, like, is that, is that what fun is or is fun supposed to go the opposite way where it's something that you discover in your own body and your own connections. And then drinking is supposed to be the enhancement of that. See, I think I got it the wrong way. I thought fun happened when I drank. And then I could just tolerate everything. Right. But, but the way that it should be is that fun is a natural discovery. Fun is, is something that happens between you and somebody that you can kind of lose time with and lose that self-consciousness and the tyranny of the mind that keeps you locked up. You know, my friendships give me that. And I don't need alcohol for them. You know, recently I was on a vacation. I was in Iceland. I was on, I was in this amazing. Iceland's amazing. Everyone should go to Iceland. Awesome. And I was in this like little geothermal swimming pool that was in the middle of a mountain. And it reminded me of like when I was in Austin and we used to go on the Guadalupe river and you'd get wasted. You'd bring all this beer. And it's like, why do we go into nature and think (laughs) need alcohol? That makes no sense to me now that I'm sober because nature and that swimming hole and that moment Give me the feeling that I was drinking for, right? which is a release from my present self, you know, lets me feel free. It lets me feel attached to something greater than me. It, it gives me solace and, and joy and a light feeling. That's why you drink. You don't go into that environment and then drink some more. You know, I mean, I guess some people do, but, but there were no, it's Iceland. So there's no like, uh, bar there, you know, it's like, it's like everybody was just hanging out on a Monday and having the best time feeling happy and free. And to me, that's what the purpose of life is, you know, and alcohol can be an additive, but once you've made it like your, your like connection or your, your umbilical cord to having fun, I just, I think that you're in danger of of losing what it is the you know true connection and true meaning and I think that is where it becomes a problem and um you know by the way I, this is stuff I still struggle with yeah like, like like because okay dating is super hard and it, it this is like a major resentment I have towards the culture like I, I hate that sober women are seen as a drag. Yeah. And it makes me angry because I feel like, man, I've worked so hard to make myself, you know, healthy and strong. And these should all be like additives as a dating partner. But instead, you know, people see on Tinder, you know, sober and they're like, Oh, forget that. No way. Because basically men have learned a shorthand, which is that drinking women are easier 
and also a lot of people that drink don't want to be around non-drinkers. So yeah, it's, 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 that's been hard for me, you know, and, and I still will get this feeling of like, I'm not cool because I don't drink. And yeah, I, it's hard. I mean, we were standing in the driveway, just randomly talking to our neighbor and my husband still drinks because he's like a sane person who can have two drinks. And so he's, yeah. he's allowed. Yeah. Um, so you know, before I know it, the whole cul-de-sac has planned a party for Friday night and I just want to crawl in a hole. And it's not because I can't handle being around it, but I'm like, oh man, I don't want to stand around and watch people drink. Like it's, and, and so I struggle with yeah. that because before it, it kind of goes to the whole thing, like you said about being in Iceland, there's nothing magical in nature about like standing around and drinking in a cul-de-sac when I would rather just like maybe sit on the porch and talk to these people. You know what I mean? And I don't really, it's, it's, yeah. it's the fine line um, that, that maybe someone who doesn't have a drinking problem says, what, what are you even talking about? But to me, it's a huge difference. Oh Yeah. Yeah. And I, what I find is that when I'm super connected to somebody or I'm having a great deep conversation, I don't even miss alcohol. I don't even notice alcohol. I can't believe this is true, but I don't. When I'm feeling awkward, out of place, like I don't know where to put my hands or whatever, that's when I miss it. Or that's when I feel out of place. And there are, face it, there are a lot of times in life that could, are not that great and could use some chemical enhancement. You know, like that's why we did it. Yeah. I'm reminded. It's not like I got sober and I was like, well, I'm glad I'm done with that. I'm reminded every single day why I drank. It was in many ways a logical choice for someone that struggles with anxiety, um, with someone that struggles with finding comfort in her own body, someone that struggles with pleasing others or, you know, being enough for others, like all this stuff that is my kind of basket of challenges <laughs> that is like drinking is the perfect is is like the perfect solution if I could have drank like a normal person like your husband I would have kept doing it yeah I Absolutely. just couldn't do it and so now I kind of feel like I've lost those privileges you know like I sometimes I hear David Sedaris talk about um you know when he quit smoking and he was just like I smoked my fill you know like I had <laughs> Five million cigarettes and five million was the limit. Right. And I feel that way. Like I got a good run. <laughs> got like 25 years of that crutch. Yeah. And now it's time for me to carry the ball on my own without the help of that. And, you know, it's it's what we call in um in AA like another effing growth opportunity. It's like when I stand in a boring cul-de-sac with people I don't know and try to make conversation. That's an opportunity for me to, to grow up and realize that small talk interactions are a part of life and that they're how we kind of connect to people around us and that I don't have to be the funniest person there and that it's okay to just ask people about their day. You know, I think for a long time I felt like I needed to entertain everybody and I think that was a problem. Yeah. I think I think it's also why I was getting into trouble with my friends when I drank cuz I was like, oh, an attention hog. But I thought I was being entertaining, which is so sad. I was like, I'm making you guys laugh. And they were like, you're driving us crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and so Um, when I learned sobriety has been about listening a lot of times for me, 
because listening helps me get out of my own head and I'm my own worst enemy sometimes. So when I learned that I can stand in a cul-de-sac and say, how was your day? What's, what's your job like? What's it like to be at that? What is, you know, what is an insurance adjuster? You know, (laughs) sometimes I'm not so good at it, but, but I'm, but I'm learning about other people and I'm, what have I always been wanting? Connection, you know, to, to know that I wasn't alone, to, to feel like I was connected to other people. That's why the alcohol and the bar and all that stuff were so meaningful to me. So now I try to find it on my own. And sometimes I make kind of, you know, uh, awkward attempts at it, but, but I'm, but I'm trying. There was a part of me when I was younger, I just wouldn't even try. It was like, well, that's embarrassing. You know, I wouldn't go to a party if I couldn't drink because the drinking helped release me from that part of me that was like, it's embarrassing. You're asking the wrong questions, the self-consciousness. So now I just try to quiet that and remember that I'm just another person that doesn't know the right questions to ask someone until they know them better. That's how we get to know each other. Right. And I've gotten better at it. It, Honestly, it's helpful for me because all my, a lot of my secrets are out there. So people will just start talking to me about their like, Cause they know I've told about my drinking problem and my this, that, or the other thing. And so they'll just start talking to me about serious stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> it's really easy to forge connections when you throw your shit out there. That's for yes. sure. I think it's, it's, it's a bonding mechanism that's even better than drinking. Yep. It is shared pain. So when, when you hear of people that, well, I mean, you and I were both stuck in the cycle you know, the cycle, the drink, the wake up, hate yourself, the say, I'm never going to do it again. The, and repeating every day for, you know, it seemed like several years for you. It was about it, several years for me as well. What is the advice that you have for people who are in that cycle? How do they get out of it? What is the step one? Well, you know, I think for me, I needed to be convinced that I couldn't manage my own drinking. And so one of the interesting things that someone did for me, I was like, you know, I did this thing where I would reach out to people that I knew had quit. And because I was like, they must have some magic pill or magic answer. And then oftentimes for me, they'd be like, well, I went to AA. And I was like, oh, I didn't want to hear that because I did not want to go to AA. Right. And and I remember I I talked to this woman and she was just so willing to speak to me, you know, and I, I feel like you can always reach out to someone that quit and they usually make themselves available to talk to you. And that's very helpful. And and what she said to me was, she said, um, well go back to drinking, but see if you can moderate it. And this is actually outlined in the the big book. They call it try controlled drinking, which is that you only drink two drinks a night, but you do it every night for 30 days. No more, no less. Try this experiment. Because if you can do this experiment, you probably don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I failed on the first day. And then I was like, well, that's a fluke. And then I tried it again and I failed on the second day. When I could see very clearly that I couldn't moderate, then that made me realize I had a problem and I was going to need to quit. And my experience with people that are stuck in that place is that they actually know, they actually know. Yeah. They, 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 they're not wondering if they have a drink problem. They know they have a drinking problem. They just have to cross off a lot of other things before they get to the part that says quit drinking. 
<laughs> you know, so they have to make a list that says, why don't I try juice fast? And then why don't I try <laughs> yoga for 90 days? And why don't I try only drinking on the weekends? Like they're going to have to do all those things. And I could tell them, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. Just skip ahead. But they've got to, I had to do it too. I needed to cross off every single option. Because let me tell you, the way that I loved alcohol, I was not going to let it go without crossing off every single option. No way. If there was a way that I could juice fast every month and still keep drinking, I would have done it. So I had to do all that. And, and then when you finally get to the bottom and you see, oh, okay, it's just quit drinking. <laughs> then you're like, then you know what to do. And, you know, I, I want to... I think there are a lot of ways to get sober and I think there's no wrong way to get sober. I think the important thing is to find what works for you. I can tell you why AA did work for me, even though I found a lot of its groupiness to be uncomfortable and, and a lot of its God stuff to be uncomfortable and a lot of its slogans and all that stuff. I think what AA does is to create accountability for people because you suddenly are like hooked into these people that, even though you don't know them, you're like, oh, I don't want to let them down. Um, and you can be honest with them in a way that you can't be honest with your friends and family at that time. Cause maybe your friends and family are kind of done with you or they can't quite hear the truth or you're not ready to tell them the truth or whatever. Um, but I'll tell you that it was other people's stories that got me free mm -hmm. because when I could hear, you know, there's something in literature called the shock of recognition, which is when you hear an author describe something you thought was peculiar to you. And it's something that books do really, really well. And you'll be reading along and you're like, oh my God, I didn't know anybody did that, but they do that. And, you know, or, or the author will articulate something that you, you always thought, but you had never really found the words for. Yes. And in your book, it was all, every time you describe walking in high heels drunk. <laughs> I was like, that's me. That's what I felt like. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't know somebody else was doing that. Because you had me at the beginning. I think it's in like the very beginning of your book where you're talking about walking across the marble floor of the hotel oh, in yeah. Paris. And I was like, oh, I'm into this book. <laughs> well, yeah, nobody ever wrote about that, right? Walking in heels drunk is really hard. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or when I sat in rooms and listened to other people that had had the same problem that I had, it was just like, that's me. That's me. I, I, that, I had that problem. I, I struggled with that. I did that too. I didn't know other people, you know, also, um, you know, only drank on weekends or, you know, had cut out brown liquor or, you know, made this or that excuse. I didn't, I didn't know that. And then suddenly it's like all the veils get ripped away and you see that all these other people are shouldering the same problem <laughs> and that they have found a lot more peace by letting go of alcohol. You know, that alcohol wasn't serving their soul and their life's purpose. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the big book that's a little bit, it's a little dramatic because you have to remember it was written in 1939. So people that had drinking problems back then had like really bad drinking problems. Mm -hmm. So in the book, it'll say things like, you know, if you keep drinking, it's either death or a sanatorium, you know? And I was like, <laughs> oh. this is ridiculous. 
I probably could have kept drinking. I, I, very, very likely. But I don't think I ever would have gotten myself back in the way that I did. Gotten my soul back, gotten my self-confidence back, gotten my feet underneath me in the way that I have until I quit. Because as much as alcohol helped me in the beginning, it had turned and it was getting in my way. It was getting in the way of <laughs> this is my kitty cat. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting in the way of everything that I wanted for myself. And so when I could see my story reflected back to me, you know, that's what AA gave me for which I will always be eternally grateful because I could see that I was not alone. And hearing that was not only, you know, could make me let go of some of the like guilt and shame and all that stuff. But it also just gave me connection and a community. And that's what I had wanted from drinking. You know, I drank to feel connected to someone. And I remember I always loved to be that person in the bar that was like, let's play truth or dare, but only truth, you know, like (laughs) tell each other our darkest secrets. I was always wanting to get to that place where we, you and I stopped pretending and we told each other the truth about our lives. And what I felt in an AA room was exactly that, you know, was that people just got real about their life and they started telling you like all this really complicated, dark, deep stuff. And it was, it was crazy and it was sad sometimes and it was, you know, weird sometimes And it was, but it would transport me, you know? And I was like, wow, this is wild. So that, that really, really helped me. But I want to say, I know people that have gotten sober without ever going to an AA meeting. I know people that have gotten sober by going to a few and, you know, taking what they needed and saying bye-bye. I know people that have medicated, you know, medicated meaning um, used like baclofen and now I'm trying to remember the other drug, but there are a couple different medications you can take to kind of help with your cravings. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different ways, but I think one of the things you have to do is it's not enough to stop drinking. At some point you have to address the reasons why you were drinking. Yeah. And you have to figure out how you do that, whether it's, you know, starting a podcast and talking to people <laughs> about it, or whether it's, you know, going into therapy or what, you know, whatever that is. You, because it's just, I, I think that that you get to a place where you realize drinking was only the symptom. Right. And it's very confusing at first because you're like, if I only can quit drinking, then I'm just going to be fine. My life will be fine. But what happens is that behavior, compulsivity, addictive nature, um, let me, you know, uh, get somehow get my way out of my feelings or whatever it is, it pops up in different areas. For me, it pops up with drinking. It pops up around obsessive thinking around men. It pops up around all sorts of stuff that I've had to, you know, address. It it wasn't, it wasn't just drinking. Well, what you said that was really interesting to me was how, um, when you're sober, you look around and you say, oh, yeah, that's why I drank. Like, yeah. it doesn't oh. fix anything. It actually compounds things, I guess. But w- one of the things I did um, when I decided I would not drink again was making a promise to myself that I was going to give 
2016, which was the, the year I was going to give it my best efforts and in all areas. And that was a really tall order, but I just kind of made myself an experiment. I'm like, what if I really tried to eat well? What if I tried to be kinder to people, you know, yeah. and, and that took the pressure off of, oh shit, this is an opportunity to drink. This jerk cut me off in traffic or whatever. Like, I feel like focusing on trying to, like you said, doing something good for other people or doing yeah. good, it, it, it makes it easier to move on. I think, uh, I think in, in AA, they talk a lot about a spiritual awakening and there's a lot of different ways to interpret a spiritual awakening. But I think a lot, I think of it a lot less as a, as a sort of traditional old white light experience and more of a, a psychic shift of what happens when you stop kind of building the list of what you don't have and you start being grateful for what you do. And when you stop experiencing everything as like, somebody cut me off in traffic, they're out to get me, you know, but like, oh, maybe that person's in crisis. I hope they get to where they need to be. Right. Um, and, and again, I think this is another one of those places where, for me, I sometimes feel like my current runs the, the opposite way of American culture. Because I feel like so much of American culture is designed to, like, get you outraged and make you mad. And can you believe this thing that so-and-so said? And I'm so angry at so and you know, Facebook is this outrage machine and, and political stories are these outrage machines. Like, let's get angry. And I don't want to get angry. You know, I don't want, I don't want to get angry and I have to kind of build boundaries to, to not cut myself off from the world, to be aware of what's going on. I don't want to be somebody that doesn't know what's happening in the world, nor do I want to be somebody that is, that is kind of losing myself in that struggle to where like my mood is really bad because, you know, because I end up being kind of a sensitive person. So I'm, I have to be careful about about taking on other people's moods or whatever yeah. it is. But, um, you know, I, I think that when you can, I think one of the reasons why AA is service oriented is because what you realize is when you start doing things that are good for other people, you just feel better about yourself. Yeah. Like it's, it sounds so corny, right? Like if anybody told me, well, my advice to you when trying to quit drinking is to help someone else, I would have been like <laughs> double barrel, flip off like, <laughs> like that. it's ridiculous but it turns out that it actually kind of like short circuits your own like self-pity machine and then you do something better and you're like hey I feel really good about myself which is what you were going to the alcohol to do was to boost your feeling now all that said I'm still like a selfish self-centered totally you know childish person sometimes like and I'll just be so ridiculous about like, I get this thing or that thing. I'll do it. I go there. But I try to watch myself. And, uh, and I think one of the things that changed in me is that I know drinking doesn't fix any of that stuff. All it does is postpone you reckoning with it. You know, drinking doesn't fix any problem. It just makes you forget that you have the problem. Until the morning. <laughs> Until the morning when you've actually usually made new problems. Right. <laughs> So it presents itself as a problem solver when it actually is a problem creator <laughs> right? <laughs> or can be. I mean, of course, sometimes it's not, you know, um, but, but for me that, that was the, the formula. And so now I just realized like drinking would feel good. Look, drinking would feel good when I'm in my, like people always ask me, don't you miss it? Yeah, of course. 
Of course. But I know that it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't do what I want it to do, which is to change the way I feel. If I want to change the way I feel, I have to change my behavior. I can't drink my way. Drinking is such magical thinking. It's like, it's like, oh, I'm just going to drink away this problem. No, you're not. You're just going to drink it away for like four hours. So I think there's a real necessity to hovering over yourself and watching the situation and being objective about drinking. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's hard to do because I don't, you know, we're drinking to not do that. To not be aware, to just, you know, because the thing is, is that being a human being is hard. And I do think that we all deserve to stop caring for a while. You know, and I think that alcohol is one of the easiest ways to do that. It's just you have to be really careful not to do that too often. If you do it too often, you get into trouble. Yeah, and yeah. Fi- finding other outlets, right? Like you said in Iceland or, or going for a run or finding somewhere that you can escape. I had such a creative failure at the end. It was like the only thing I knew how to do for any activity was drink. It was like, if I'm happy, I need to drink. And if I'm sad, I need to drink. And if I'm bored, I need to drink. And if I don't know what to do, I need to drink. Like every celebration, drink, commiseration, drink. Everything was drinking. And that is a failure of imagination. Because life is much bigger than that. And one of the gifts of kind of getting some distance from that time in my life is that I have done a lot of things that I always wanted to do. I learned to play guitar, which I always talked about doing, and I never did it, and now I did it, and it's really hard, and I'm not very good, but it is a good way to unwind, and I take bike rides, and I travel, and I, you know, I do things that before then I was like, I should do that, you know, (laughs) do that, go, 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 and now I actually do the thing instead of talking about doing the thing. And, um, and I've gotten better about finding stress reducers. And I've also gotten better about not creating drama. Like I swear, I used to like hang out with people I didn't like. And then I'd be like, I go to drink through this. And it's like, why don't you just not hang out with those people? (laughs) You don't have to drink. That's so funny. So true. So Sarah, um, one more question for you. Um, this podcast is called the same 24 hours and it was born from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but what we do in those 24 hours and in our case, not drink, um, leads to our better happiness and healthiness and success. So what is something you do on a daily basis that makes a difference in your life? Okay. Well, Here's one thing I do that is really, I think I would think it was creepy. So I'm a little, <laughs> I'm like a little hesitant to tell you that I do this, but I do it. And that's that every morning I get on my knees and I pray and I pray to basically just, you know, be freed of a lot of my own nonsense and to be useful to other people in the world. And I don't know that I, like, I definitely don't believe in like a robed God or whatever, like a, like a guy with a beard that like lets you into heaven. But I believe that we can direct our own thinking and our own path by the attitudes that we take. And when I kind of get on my knees every morning and, and ask to kind of get out of my own way, I believe that it helps me be 
just in better shape to be of service to people and to be my better self. I honestly, you know, I'm sorry. I feel like I sound like such new age mumbo jumbo. No, you don't. You don't. And I absolutely don't think it's creepy to pray. And I, well, I mean, I've been really embarrassed by it because I have friends that just think that is so weird. And I thought it was so weird. And I remember the first time I did it, I was like, thought, you know, when you do those things and even though you're alone, you're sure like everybody's watching you, you know? <laughs> Like the first time I masturbated as an adult, I was like, oh my God, I think everyone can see that. <laughs> like the, it had that feeling to me. Um, and, but I've done it now for years and I, it's a very valuable way for me to start my day, which is to remember that there are things that are greater than me. You know, I'm not the center of the universe, the world. I'm just sort of drifting through this universe. I don't know what my purpose is. Nobody ever really does. And so all I can do is hope that or maybe there, maybe I don't have a purpose. Maybe purpose is just the discovery of what your path ends up being, but I want it to be, I want it to be as good as it can be. And so this is a way for me to kind of tighten the screws in my own mind every morning. And I find it to be very helpful and I wouldn't do it. I think if I didn't find it to be helpful, I always remember there's a quote from CS Lewis and he says, you know, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. And so, so that's, so that's what I do every day. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much. Everyone, check out her book, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. I feel like we would have been good drinking buddies, Sarah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, well, I would have bought you so first much. margarita. <laughs> well, have a great one, and thank you for all the work you're doing, and talk soon. Oh, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.